Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. Few artists have brought underground dance music to as many people as Ronnie Size. In 1997, along with his group Represent, the Bristol-born jungle and drum and bass icon released the double album New Forms, which received considerable critical acclaim, won the group the Mercury Music Prize, and spawned the massive crossover single Brown Paper Bag. The album might be the biggest bullet point in any assessment of Ronnie Size's career, but it's hardly the only one. He's run labels, amassed an impressive list of collaborations, and played festivals from Glastonbury to Coachella. When Joe Muggs caught up with him recently in London, Size was about to release Take Control, his first album of wholly original material in a decade, and a sort of comeback record from a break from the spotlight. They started off by discussing what he's been up to during the last four years, when making music has taken a backseat to some other critical aspects of his life. In the game after a break from working a break away from the public eye a bit are you excited to be where you are right now yeah it's been a little while since i've actually feel like i've been this deep in the you know in the drum and bass scene and even in the music scene it's great to take a step back there is life outside of music you know you have family commitments and you have children and stuff and just the other week i went to see my son graduate and you know these are some of the the highlights of my life where before I think the music kind of just, you know, it was such a whirlwind for me, it overtook my life. I missed quite a lot of the firsts, you know, just in my general life, not so much involved in the music, but just outside of my life. The last four years has been a great opportunity for me to be able to catch up with family and friends and to really take a bird's eye view and to, you know, have my ears open and listening to the new sounds of uh, drum and bass and even just in electronic music coming through and rather than being so in it deep where you hear something and then you feel, oh yeah, yeah, you know, I want to, you know, be a part of that. It was great just to be able to take a step back and even though I was DJing all the time, it was great just to be able to take a step back to listen to the music, appreciate it and not feel like I needed to be involved in the, the uprising of, of new music. Whereas before, when I first started this game and when I first got involved in, in drum and bass and dance music and the rave culture, I felt like it was, it was my calling 
to be a part of something and it was a great journey for me to be a part of a unique group of people with Full Cycle and Dope Dragon and to be a part of some type of like, you know, history in the making and to be a part of that journey made me who I am today. And to take a step back from that wasn't easy. It was something which, you know, you do with an open heart, knowing that you're going to come back and hopefully still be able to, you know, be a part of that that next wave of, of making music and to hopefully to redefine who I am and to to get to that point where I feel like, you know, I do fill a gap and what I bring to the table is something different. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the last four years, family and friends and and now it's, you know, back to business and looking forward to putting out some new music. Great. I mean, before we get on to what this new music sounds like and what you're how you're delivering it let's have a, a a recap of how you got here and I, I mean it's a long story but i really want to gather together the elements that made ronnie size and, and full cycle and all of these things i mean you grew up in bristol right what were the sounds around you that drove you to be focused on music to begin with the, there's an old saying is like where you're where you're planted is where you blossom and i'm very fortunate to have landed in a place called bristol and is Bristol is where I've blossomed. I've been surrounded by a lot of my peers, like the Massive Attacks and Smith and & Mighty and Tricky and Porter's Head and all those who come before and after I've always been inspired by. So I was very fortunate to have landed in uh, this whirlwind of, of sound systems and Technics 1200s and breakbeats and bass lines and, and festivals and food and culture. I'm, I'm very fortunate that is where I was born. I didn't have a choice. I'm very lucky. Yeah, I, I could have been born, no disrespect to Newport people, but two <laughs> minutes down the road, it would have been Newport and it could have been a whole different story. Just across the bridge, it would have been a whole... <laughs> so, you know, <clears throat> to put that in perspective, being in Bristol, for me, you know, it was something that I never had a choice in. I have to thank my parents for that. And that is just... The road that I live. You were involved with music from school age, right? School for me was very difficult. When they said to me, uh, what do you want to do? I said music. So they put a violin in front of me. Now, if I knew what I knew back then, uh, I would have kept the violin going or I would have played the piano. But it didn't make no sense to me. Violin, you know, reading music from a, from a script never made any sense to me. So they didn't really understand what I meant when I said music and it was my calling. So I, I was always brought up around music in my family. My mum would always use, you know, records at her parties. And my brothers were obviously important part of my life because they could afford to go out and buy the records, which I could never afford to go. So they would like give me like six pounds and I used to run down to Soundsville's record shop and have to go and buy the latest imports. So I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a lot of um, influential icons like my brothers and my mum at the time. And like I said, school didn't really understand me and and so forth. Were your brothers DJing then? So one of my brothers was part of a sound system culture. So he was like emceeing, which we called DJing as well. Toasting on the mic, <laughs> Sing Jay. He was a part of a band called Freedom City and a, uh, another band called Restriction. And they were pretty well known in Bristol. They 
covered the reggae side of things. And then my other brother was a part of a crew called UD4. And back in the day, so to speak, it was Wild Bunch, it was City Rockers, it was UD4, it was Plus One, it was FBI crew. And my brother and a lot of my family were involved in with all these different crews. There was different breakdance crews, there were different graffiti crews. It was... It was all crews. And, uh, and we're talking 1980s. So, I mean, what was this? Soul, hip hop, electro? Yeah, we're and... talking around the time of about 1984. I think I can remember my first real party going out. And then uh, it became the norm in Bristol going out to the Red House where you would see guest DJs like Nutriment come down. And, you know, there was uh, guest graffiti artists like Goldie and Brim. Bio and Blim, I think that was the names. And um, yeah, this was the early 80s. And now I'm showing my age, man. It's like, <laughs> I still feel like I'm 16 at heart because of my history. I've, I've still got this bird's eye view of what it used to be like. And I, I loved every minute of it. But being brought up around all this amalgamation of cultures, just for me, the playground I could have never asked for. So how did you put it together then? I mean, you know, the violin wasn't any use to you and you were into your brother's records. Well, the thing is, is when school didn't really have anything to offer me, I started to play truancy. You know what I mean? I didn't go. Then I found, whilst wandering the streets of Bristol during the daytimes of my days off, I found the Basement Project or Sefton Park Youth Club. And this place, rather than, you know, tell you what to do, they asked you what to do. You know, they say, oh, what do you want to do? I say, I play basketball. I like sports. I want to play basketball. So, you know, they put a basketball net and a basketball. So we played that until we got bored. So there's so many hoops you can throw. And plus, I'm only like five foot seven. So it was never going to work for me. And then uh, they said, uh, what else do you want to do? I said, well, I like music. I like dancing. I like music. Well, they had like a floor we used to polish. Used to polish the floor and just used to do backspins. But, you know, the digital age of music started to appear. They said... Well, you know, if you want to do music, what is it you want to start with? Well, I said, I saw this drum machine. They said, okay, well, what we'll do then, we'll do a competition, we'll raise some money, we'll do a raffle, and then we'll buy the drum machine. And that's how it went. So every time we wanted something for the studio, we'd do a raffle, raise some money, and then we'd go out and then we'd buy the equipment for the studio. At the same time, one of my older brothers was still, at that point, making some money, and he was building his studio as well. So when I wasn't at the youth club, I was at my brother's. And when I was at my brother's, I was at the youth club. You know, as soon as I got myself a Spectrum 48K computer, I tried to make music on it. Couldn't really do that. It was all bleeps and blobs. <laughs> then we got a BBC computer. We tried that. And it wasn't until a friend of my brother met two guys from Bath called Absolute. And these two guys were basically had a studio in Bath. And we went to the studio and they basically showed us how to get the setup. The moral of the story is the two guys that we met at the time are responsible for producing all of the Spice Girls records. <laughs> so these two guys, and they actually knew Brian G because they used to work at Rhythm King. So the story really is I went to see these guys in Bath who produced the Spice Girls and they were working with Brian G at Rhythm King. They gave my tapes to Brian G at Rhythm King. And then when Brian G got made redundant, he took the tapes with him from Rhythm King and then approached me because the tapes that he had and that's how V Recordings was born. What were you making at that point? I mean, what were these these sounds? At, the, at that point there, it was just funk, hip-hop and just 
raw kind of break sound and music. It was some of my early tracks. Like one of the tracks that was on this tape was "It's a Jazz Thing." Wow. Okay. So, so you discovered rave music by this point as well, then? So at this point, there it was right at the very beginning when the rave was starting to just cross over slightly into hip hop and the breaks, and it was, but it never had a name. There was no name. It was just people. What was it called? What was the music called back then? Oh, it was like house, hip house. They hip house, it. right. Okay, yeah, yeah. 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 So I, I remember it, you know, at that time you could hear the tempo starting to speed up in the music. But the first record I actually put out was on um, a label called WTP Records. And it was a record I'd done with the two guys, Alvin and Bonnick. And uh, we were called Freeway Splits. And we did just split three ways. It was one record we'd done and we'd never do it again. And it was uh, on a label called WTP Records, which is called Where's the Party mm-hmm. Records, which is a, a subsidiary of Circus Warp, which yeah. was a massive rave, rave sound system at the time. We hooked up with a guy called Chris Lewis and he helped to, uh, to form Four Cycle. And Chris was like the head honcho at the time and he helped to run the label. So I, this, I, I was going to ask mm. about this actually, because I mean, Circus Warp was, you know, really connected to the New Age Traveller thing and free parties and Castle Morton and all that sort of thing. Was there a big connection with that scene in Bristol? Absolutely. Castle Morton and I went to Castle Morton, which is great eye opener. You know, you see everything from a, a totally different perspective. Lechlade and all these different events that were happening, you could just hear the different styles of music. You'd walk from one tent to another and then you'd get from one tent the the, the, the flat kick, the, the doof, 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 doof from one tent and then you hear the breaks from the other tent. And if you stood in the middle, you could kind of like almost like self-mix it. And my personal opinion is like the way that the music kind of grew is because you had all these different tents. You can hear the overlap. And it just gave you so many ideas, you know, you could hear the reflections of all the music in the tents and you had to be there. I believe you had to be there. You know, it's the same thing when being at St. Paul's Carnival. I live in Bristol. I live on the top of the hill and you can just hear the bass lines overlapping. If you're musically minded, you can take out what you need and you can be quite creative and remember that vibe and um, you can like recreate that. So yeah, I was fortunate to have stumbled along Chris, who was someone who was well-connected and was funding uh, the label. And he was a friend of myself and he was a friend of Crust and he was a friend of Die, And we all worked together with the same ideas in mind. And and those early records, I mean, you know, more than anyone else, you were bringing this quite complex rhythmic sensibility. You know, other people were bringing breakbeats into rave, but you really kind of created the idea of the roller. You know, for me, what it really came down to and you know not just for me but for us as a unit when we used to go out we used to go to these raves and we used to stand in the middle of the rave and we used to just wait for one certain record to come on in that rave it wasn't even the record it was a part of the record because all of the the records at that time would be like some crazy stabs and some really four to the floor stabs and kick drums and then the part that we would like where it just dropped just a break beat and a bass and we were like, you know what? We just want to just make music, take away all the other stuff. We just like that part there. So for us, it was, wasn't was really rocket science just to take away the stuff that you don't like and just elongate the stuff that you do like. And that is where we feel like we we made a difference. We tried to make it not so complicated because it got kind of busy at one point where people were just so in the computers. 
it just became unlistenable. And uh, we just felt like, well, you know, if we put the kick and put the snare here, I think it was like house music, you know, you have that boom, 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 boom. But that two-step thing, we felt like that's what we wanted to keep rolling. You know, with Music Box, we put the boom, ket, boom, ket, and we felt that like that was round about the beginning of when that first sound started to roll in. Mm. So, you know, we feel like we have made our mark somewhere in the creation of drum and bass music. Mm-hmm. So as a group of producers, you were putting out your, each putting out your own records, sometimes collaborating with each other. You had your own label. When did the idea of becoming a collective as represent start occurring to you? But, but that's what it was. It was for us, we were, you know, just putting out our own individual records and we were quite prolific in doing that. I think it was at a point where I think myself and Cross, we were already pretty well schooled up and we could produce ourselves. We actually didn't have to have anyone else in the room. And then it was just a matter of time until everyone else started to learn how to use the equipment to use all up to speed. But at that point, I think Cross was more working with inside the Smith & Mighty studio and I was working at my brother's studio and I was working uh, at the basement. So I was always engineering everyone else's music. The basement being the, the project that the, you'd set up yourself yeah, at the youth club. Yeah, so, and, but it was more the case of like working at my brother's studio and, you know, like I said, I, I could use the equipment already. So I was always hands-on and everyone else was coming in and adding their two pences, which is cool. And then once everyone started to know how to use the equipment, everyone started to become their own person in their own individual right. It was, it was great. We could all then start releasing music, going out and buying equipment and building our own studios. We were putting out music and then we started to get noticed from the majors. You know, first of all, it was basically putting out music through V and Full Cycle and Dope Dragon. And then once Mo Wax and Talking Now started to get wind of what we were doing, that is when, you know, things started to, you know, take a different turn. We started to realise that, you know, there were people looking in from, you know, people who could make things happen differently. And this was all in the space of really quite a, a short period of time, looking back on it. I mean, between 93 and 95, really, I exactly. guess. Exactly. We were starting to get a lot of remixes because a lot of people were searching for the sound. And there was people like myself and there was like obviously Goldie, there was Fotec, there was Dillinger, there was Adam F, there was people like DJ Hype and there was a lot of the Raga guys as well and Shy Effects. And we were all starting to make waves and starting to get our record deals and starting to, you know, people starting to approach us and saw that we had something to offer Bookham and all these people would like, you know, come looking for this new sound. And let's you know, the majors were starting to sign people and we didn't want to miss the boat. So when Talking Loud and Mowax came in for us, it was great. It was a, a time where myself and Cross were fully established producers at that time, knowing what we were doing in the studio and releasing records. And when they came in for us, it was great. It made us feel really more confident about what we were doing and more belief in what we were doing. So obviously, we signed with Talking Loud. We put out a couple of remixes with Mowax. Mm-hmm. But we signed with Talking Loud and it was been a fantastic experience. We learned the ins and outs of a major record company, how it works, what to do, what not to do. It was a, a magical experience to know that we could release a record 
and then it could be picked up and it could win awards and it could be toured and <laughs> it can be um something that I can look back on and feel very proud about. But out of anybody from the drum and bass jungle world, you seemed to put together a package that could fit into the major label world that they could understand and that you could have some control over at the same time. Well, I think, you know, one of the things about being involved in new music and a new journey is like, it's very unintentional, you know, what you do. And people recognize that. They can see that when, if you sit on the fence, you're going to get splinters. You know what I mean? That's, that's what I say. And it's like, some people, they don't know whether they're going to be go for it and sell out or they're just going to just keep to the guns and not sell out to use the word. It's not, it's, it, you know, I don't really agree with the word, but you understand what I mean. And I think people knew that what well, we got to where we were going very unintentionally and we stuck to our heart's content. We did it straight from the heart. We didn't really compromise. We didn't really try to make radio music. We didn't try to make pop arrangements. We just did what we knew how to do. Whereas now I think... I look at it like maybe now there is a lot of compromise going on. People are making pop arrangements. People are compromising their sound a bit, but it works. Look how massive the music is now. It's just gigantic. It's filling stadiums and it's, you know, number it's, one it's, it's number one singles now. It's like, almost feel like we peaked too soon. <laughs> but at the same time, still looking forward to, to being a part of the journey. Sure. And how did the journey progress then? I mean, you signed, you signed as represent... But you also had Breakbeat Era. So the way that we kind of had it rolling was that when we was working with Four Cycle and Dope Dragon and with V Recordings, we always worked sometimes as solo artists and sometimes we worked as pairs. Sometimes we worked as trios. I mean, sometimes we worked as quads. That's just the way it went. Me and I was known as Scorpio. Myself and Crust was, you know, gang related and mask. And then, you know, myself and Sub and the Dope Dragon story. And we, we had different avenues. I was approached by Talking Loud. I knew that I didn't want to do this without my crew, without my people. So no matter what, we was always going to do it together. Myself, Dynamite, you know, Crust. We were all in it because they couldn't sign every one of us individually but they signed myself and they signed Crust. So just to even it all out, we felt that myself and Di had something to offer as well. So we approached XL and then we created Breakbeat Era. So we kind of like made sure that we didn't step on anyone's toes, but we had a lot of different avenues for our music as well as keeping our own independence. So for, for us, it was the master plan at the time. It was the, the art of being in, in many places at one time. And... Um, it's changed a lot now. There's only one Ronnie size at the moment, so you can't be in, you know, ten places at once. You can only be in one place at a time. So, whereas before, I think we kind of quite easy for us to be in different places. I mean, it showed immense faith in your own productivity. I mean, and you were all just rolling out the tunes at that point. So I guess you had you had a surplus. Me personally, I felt like I was being so prolific that it was almost starting to interfere in the progression of the people around me and in hindsight i don't think you should ever take a step back when you're rolling you keep rolling you know what i mean but as a label manager and as a people manager and someone who really tried to bring out the best of the people around them then i feel like at the time it was the right thing to do and try to help other artists like clips and surge and tali and 
everyone on the label to try and help to get them to the next level. Clips, of course, is now red light. Exactly. As a label manager, it was a it was the right thing to do. But as a producer and as an artist, I, it was a stretch, and I think I, I lost something along the way. I feel like now I'm playing catch up, you know, because of my commitment to others, and that's just the personal way I feel. And did represent ever take over as well? Because I mean, that was obviously the highest public profile. Absolutely, represent took a toll on everyone because it was in the day when we didn't have laptops so we couldn't really produce while we were away so when we was away there was a frustration that was set in we were all towing the same line and we had the same goals but uh what would happen was we wasn't getting enough studio time so we'd be away for a month and then by the time you get back you're so tired from touring and djing that you last thing you wanted to do was be in the studio so yeah it kind of you know, it took its toll a little bit. That hence why we had to stop. Hence why we had to, you know, get new members in just so other people can continue with what they was doing and to them to better their careers. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, represent was my baby. You know what I mean? It was our baby, but it was my name, and we, you know, we we took it as far as we could as a unit. But now. You know, I've got the the ball by the horns, and you know, represent is 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 my baby now, and and dynamite and honesty. This is our this is our babies, you know, that we want to to be able to progress forward. Sure. So, what was the what was the kind of point where you really had to say I'm stepping away from represent? What really led to that? Well, I think the key thing for me was making sure that Crust had his main support. He had his album coming out on Talking Now and he needed the backing of, of everyone. And I think when his album came out, he just uh, we just wanted to support him, whether it was with remixes, with DJing. We just wanted to make sure that we were behind him. We wanted his album to, to get the same attention that New Forms did, which was going to be a hard challenge because, you know, we'd won the fucking Mercury Prize. Mm. You know what I mean? So it was like anything less would have been deemed as pretty much not really a failure but it was never going to eclipse you know what we had done so just getting to a point where cross put his album out we started to put out a a lot of compilations started to start do a lot of djing compilations as a unit but not really making an impact in the in the charts or not making a not selling i think when the digital age changed the way that vinyl started to to seep away mm-hmm. and the the whole way the industry changed we started to see a lot of differences i think a lot of the way that we was djing changed so much changed so that is when things started to really disband like when everybody started to focus more on what they were doing and not really focus on us as a unit i think that's when things really changed so it's really by the early 2000s Around about 2004, you know, people wanted to start doing their own things. And that is what happened. I think Dynamite released an album. Dyer started his own label. I think, uh, you know, everyone started to just do their own thing. So it was just inevitable that these things was going to happen. Yeah, sure. And I mean, in the meantime as well, it was shortly after that, that kind of dubstep rose up as a new dominant force in bass music, if you like, and all sorts of other trends younger generations were coming along and and you know minimal techno and all of these well before things. that drum and bass was the new thing it was the new kid on the block 
And then as soon as um, dubstep came in, drum and bass became old. I think that was a culture shock to a lot of people who was making music, especially the whole way that we were selling like, you know, 10, 12,000 vinyls for good cash. And then that turned literally into to MP3s for free. This transition, whereas dubstep was just rising and rising and rising. And it was like the little brother of drum and bass, but it was here to stay. I think it was it was a shock to drum and bass scene, the way that these crowds were, and some of the producers, some of the toughest producers in drum and bass scene were, were crossing over to dubstep. So I think everyone took a hit, but you know what goes around comes around. Were you ever tempted to do some one forty BPM? Absolutely. You know, I was. I think one of the first, you know, drum and bass DJs to actually play a dubstep record at Brixton. Academy mm-hmm. played a track by Casper, and um, a lot of people were a little bit confused. But to me, if it's got bass then and breaks, I'm I'm in. You know, it doesn't take much to get me involved. But yeah, I've I've been tempted. I've I've, I've rolled out some tunes. I've not released anything, but I've done some some different tempos with new forms. I did different tempos mm-hmm. with the new forms remix. I did a, a different tempo. So I've I've always like messed around with those tempos. But at the same time, I was supporting Joker, who was very close to me at the time. It still is. Mm-hmm. Joker was someone that I've known since he was about eight years old. And I've seen him. He used to come into my studio and sit in the corner and just make tunes for fun. And I wanted to support him and his sound. And just to see it develop and just to see it open up was, was a great journey for me. And to know that I supported him. So for me, I felt like I was a part of the dubstep scene anyway. Without actually having my two pence in, I still had my involvement. Mm-hmm. So moving on to what you're producing <coughs> now, you took a break. You you stepped back from the studio. You're now up in London with a studio set up here. How did you start defining the sound that you were going to go for? Because it is quite electronic. It's quite influenced by kind of peak time drum and bass. You don't hear a lot of the old jazzy Roddy size in it. Well, it's early days. And in this record, it was basically taking a step back just from the limelight, but always being, you know, on my laptop or being in the studio, so to speak, but not with the intention of releasing any music. Mm -hmm. So for me, I was always making tunes, but not totally satisfied with these records. You know what I mean? Because I'm just that kind of guy. I'm, I'm a perfectionist in the sense that when I make a record and release it, I want it to be like the best record ever. But I was DJing and I was playing a lot of these tunes out and Brian G was playing some of these tunes out. You know, there were just fillers for my DJing set. But then what would happen was I would get a lot of, you know, punters or a lot of the kids in the crowd or some even some DJs come to say, oh, Ronnie, what's going on with this tune? Oh, what's going on with that tune? So I had to see like a common thread here of something was going on. And all the tunes they were asking for, I was like, well, they're never coming out. They're just tunes that I just made. Then once I started to put it all together, I thought, well, actually, this album is basically, you know, an album of special requests. Every track on this record is something which someone has asked me about. Made in Korea, people email, ask me about that. Powers, you know, is a record that everyone asks me about so many times. You know, Mishmash, people ask me about that. There's even a couple which I've made, which I've just, just to email to people which 
hasn't come out yet, but hopefully I'll put out on the next Take Control or whatever I decide to call it. But this album became an album of special requests. And it was, for me, the influence of the last 10 years of drum and bass, you know, as well as being a fan of the four cycle sound and the Dope Dragon sound, I also like people like Subfocus. I like some of his early work. I like some of the early Pendulum tunes. I like, you know, some of um, the stuff that's on Ram and some of the stuff that's on all these other labels and, you know, the, the modern day sound. I don't love all of it, but what I do like, I get inspired by and I take it and I try to do my version because everyone has to be inspired by something you can't just go into a room by yourself and just just magic something it's great to be inspired that's why we live and we breathe on this planet we want to be back in the day we used to inspire each other we used to put on old hip-hop records and mm. old jazz records and get inspired from that so there was no high concept behind these tunes they were aimed square at the dance floor then absolutely square at the dance floor apart from maybe a track on there called keep on with jay wilcox which is just me working with a great singer-songwriter. There's another track called Save Me, which didn't make the album, but is a record which I can't wait for people to hear because it is such a musical journey. It's fantastic. It's a great, just a great single record. And yeah, really, this was for the dance floor. Mm -hmm. And it was a way of me being able to to reintroduce myself into an audience who's never heard of Ronnie Size. Let's, let's get it straight. Do you know what I mean? It's like bunch of 16 to 21 year olds who you know you mention my name they say who because has he got a soundcloud <laughs> i'll give you soundcloud <laughs> did the decision to start putting these tunes out and the decision to put represent back together was that simultaneous did one come before the other i think the the bigger question is the decision to actually put four cycle to bed you know i love four cycle and i still hope to reinvent it some way and to bring it back and to bring that sound back again with a new twist and a new modern you know energy i look forward to, to doing that but at the moment the, my immediate mindset is about trying to be mansion sounds and trying to get myself back on the stage as a live band because i love that that's the one thing you know it always gets me right in the belly of my stomach uh, you know, being up on stage with eight people and all being like-minded and have to become one uh, drop of a hat is something which is a real challenge. Putting full cycle, you know, leaving my past behind is very difficult because we spent many years building up a great label and, a, you know, a, a great palette of music and I don't want it to end. We've got all these dat tapes on the floor of all this unreleased music still, which I want to try in some way get out to the loyal fans of the label. And hopefully I can do that in some way. And so what's the thing you're most immediately looking forward to getting on the stage? So. Well, we've got three shows for Represent coming this year, two which have been sold out. We've had one in Manchester, which is a great lineup with Andy C, David Rodigan, Shia FX. So we have that. And then we have a Bristol show and... You know, I'm hoping that Bristol's going to come out and they're going to rep and support. So my immediate things at the moment, yeah, is getting up on stage. And um, we have Take Control, which comes out this week on the 25th of August, which I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm happy about. But I'm really hungry and I can't wait for it just to hit the shelves and then to get into the represent. The album's called Do It For The Masses. It's going to be very musical. It's going to be a cross between 
you know, the modern day sound and as well, we're going to try and go back and still recreate what we had back then and try and keep it raw and still try and keep it, you know, quite spontaneous. At the same time, we do want want to be on main stages at festivals and we want to be selling out clubs and, you know, be headlining shows. So we do have to make sure that we have those radio hits and we do want to be, you know, we want to be up there with the best of them. Well, you uh, still like to set yourself a challenge then. Absolutely. I wouldn't be in this. I wouldn't have come back this way if I didn't feel it was right. It's taken me uh, a few years just to try and put the right team together. You know, saying that with no disrespect to the teams that I've used in the past, they've been fantastic and they've all made the journey more worth it. You know, working with Gerard from Red Light Management and working with Simon Goff and Heavyweight Management, it's, I've learned a lot and they've been loyal friends as well as being working companions. But now, you know, the reason why take control is take control is because I am now in full control of, of my own destiny. You know, I'm handpicking everyone that's working with me. Very, very fortunate to be surrounded by a lot of hungry people. And, you know, I am in full control. There is no middleman. You know, you're talking to the head honcho right here about what it is that I'm trying to do. There is no no one else down the line. If you want to know what's going on, come come speak to me. That's that's where it is. Whereas before, I think there was probably a bit of a a production line of people who we had to go through. Whereas now, I'm the buck in, stops with running. I'm taking control, and it feels good to be in control of my whole future. <laughs> <laughs>